Welcome, everyone. I appreciate you joining us for episode 39 of the Innovators Podcast Series, Where Innovators Flourish. My name is Allison Doyle, and I'm the Associate Director for the Iowa State University Research Park, and I'm also the host of the Innovators Podcast Series. Today's guest is Clayton Mooney, founder and chief farmer of Clayton Farms, which is a direct-to-consumer indoor farm that delivers fresh produce and salads to their customers. In this episode, we discuss the evolution of Clayton Farms as a business, Clayton Mooney's entrepreneurial journey, and the resources the company and Clayton have utilized here both at Iowa State University and the Iowa State Research Park. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Innovators Podcast. Today, we are joined by Clayton Moody, co-founder and chief farmer of Clayton Farms. Hi, Clayton. How are you doing, Allison? I'm fantastic. How are you today? Busy. Busy, busy, busy. Well, let's jump right into it then. So you are co-founder, CEO of Clayton Farms, as we mentioned. I've been around here for quite some time, and so we've known each other for a long time. But let's take a couple steps back. First of all, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up here, like at the research park here. Yes. So, you know, I was born and raised in southeast Iowa, a small family farm just outside of Blakesburg. My family farm is still there today. So agriculture was in my blood. And when I moved away from the family farm and transferred to Iowa State back in 2008, I planned to not be in anything ag-related ever again. Uh, Little did I know, about six years later, I had moved back from Ireland to Ames and jumped headfirst into co-founding food technology and ag technology startups. What you resist persists. (laughs) Yeah. 2014... Uh, I started my first company where I was co-founder and chief product officer of Kinosol with the solar food dehydrators. Oh, I forgot about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So coming up on a decade ago now. And, you know, with Kinosol, we, we learned very quickly that hardware is hard. Distribution is harder. We were working a lot of remote and developing regions. And while working in Eastern Africa primarily, in Rwanda, Uganda, Tanzania, I kept coming back to the question of how do we create access to the food people deserve, like in our own backyard. And flash forward a few years later, I would pose that question on a blog. And I had an old Indian Hills Community College uh, friend of mine reach out, Danon Poole, who is co-founder and CTO today. And he said, I have the answer to your question. And that answer is indoor farming. I said, indoor farming? Okay, why? And he he laid out kind of two sides of the coin. One side that he felt like most indoor farms end up in is they develop all the bells and whistles. They want an automated vertical farm of the future. And that pushes out the payback period too long. And so most of them can't get profitable. They go under, which we're seeing that right now. The other side of that coin is maybe they they develop the technology and keep it pretty lean. But at the end of the day, they want to wholesale, giving themselves the smallest slice of the pie, which also pushes out the payback period. So Dayton had a different approach. And when we got started, we focused on a smaller scale version of indoor farming. So like a thousand square feet. And we jumped right into space in the research park. So before we get Back to the progression of the business, since you're sitting here at the research park, that's a decent segue into you've taken advantage of all kinds of 
services and things that are really housed in under the roof of the building that we're sitting in, the Economic Development Core facility. But back when you started, none of this existed. So talk a little bit about what you navigated through and used to help you catapult yourself to the point that you're at. And then we'll pick back up with the pivots of the business from there. Yeah. So I'm a firm believer in your network is your net worth. And when you have something like Iowa State, where, you know, top 10 ag school, you should take advantage of that if you're jumping into anything ag or food related. And to take advantage of that, you have to understand which programs are out there. So I just played dumb everywhere I went, asked which programs were available in every college. Were any resources available for current students, but also alumni? And back in 2014, I think there were maybe one to two kind of smaller incubator-esque resources. By 2016, you had Sci Starters launch, which was I was part of cohort one with Kinesol in 2016. The following fall or spring, the Startup Factory launched. And so Nebulum, which is now Clayton Farms, went through cohort two there. And then on campus, you have everything with the outreach from the Papa John Center, uh, you also had the Agricultural Entrepreneurship Initiative, or nowadays uh, the Start Something Ag, run by Kevin Kimley and Dave Krogh with their incubator. So, so many resources. And, and I like to just play dumb to understand what options are out there and then pick and choose your own adventure. Nice. Just like the just like the old Iowa State motto, right? So right. here we are today and you have a, a thriving and growing business. Talk a little bit about how you and Dana, you got together, started a business, but it's changed quite a lot. I want you to articulate the journey for people that might not know how you got to a salad shop up on Lincoln Way in Ames. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we're six years in and well, from the outside Looking in, it may look like we've changed directions a lot. I feel like we've always stayed true to our mission. And our mission is to provide people with the food they deserve. So back to that first step where we wanted to focus on smaller scale indoor farming. And we felt that was important because we could deploy our equipment, our growing equipment, closer to the consumer and within communities. So we went through the startup factory. We had some prototype space. And then we've jumped around to a couple of buildings today. We're in building seven, uh, right behind provisions there. And once we decided we wanted to focus on small scale, then we need to figure out what to grow. So that next step, we ended up partnering with local chefs, produce managers, and restaurateurs to get their feedback on what we should grow, how we should grow it, when we should harvest so it could be at its peak flavor. Today, our growing technology can grow about 200 foods across leafy greens, microgreens, and vine crops like our cherry tomatoes. So once we had that established with some awesome partners who were local, and we had gone through some beta and some pilot projects, then we said, okay, well, let's test that our technology could work in different scenarios and different locations. So we started with a subscription box model that we started from right here in the research park at our indoor farm. And we would harvest from our farm and deliver to a local resident's doorstep just hours after harvest. And for us, it's really, really important to keep the harvest to delivery time as short as possible. And that's because most produce loses a third or more of its nutrients just three days after harvest. So getting it to someone's doorstep, you get the full nutritional benefit plus the full flavor profile. What is um, like in a traditional, if I go to a big chain, big box grocery store and something's been on a truck to get there, what's the time frame traditionally? 
So in most cases here in the Midwest, if you'd walk into a produce aisle right now, that is seven days, best case scenario, post-harvest, but likely close to 10 to 11 days wow. into its 14-day shelf life as well. So by the time you get that clamshell of your lettuce home, you have your first salad, the next day you're throwing it away, it's all slimy, right? Right. Yeah. Like I joke when I buy raspberries that by the time I get them to my car, they're furry. There you go. Yeah. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yes. And and you know, that's uh, that that's really, really important for us from the nutritional side, but it also is for the flavor profile. So as an example, when we have people come through for a farm tour today and we pluck a, you know, a leaf of our arugula, our really peppery arugula off of our units and hand it to them, most times we get the response of, whoa, I've not tasted arugula like this. And that's just because most of the arugula they have tasted or tried to enjoy in the past is at the end of its shelf life. Interesting. So what have you learned from this whole stage? What are the pivots? Yes. So with the subscription box model, we compared it to the indoor farming industry as a whole. And we looked and saw that most indoor farms take seven years to reach profitability. So we said, if we own the supply chain from the moment we start a seed in the nursery to the moment we deliver the fresh food on someone's doorstep, owning that supply chain, can we capture more of that value? Sure. And so we proved it out and we were able to get this farm to profitability in just a couple of years. So compared to the industry average, that's pretty good. But we said we need to do better. And we went in search of a larger market to test our exact same setup and our growing. And we ended up landing on Minneapolis. We launched at the end of September of 2022. That farm is about double the size of the farm here in Ames. And we wanted to serve all of the Minneapolis and St. Paul area. So we essentially put a pin where our, our farm is, drew a 30-mile radius and said, if you're within this radius, we will harvest and deliver to your doorstep. And so with that being a bigger market, we expected a faster payback. It is shaping up to, to be closer to a year for that one to be at profitable. But towards the end of 2022, we started thinking about, you know, by definition, a startup is something that is searching for a repeatable, scalable business model. And to us, everything is an experiment. And whatever works, we double down on. Whatever doesn't work, we chalk it up to it was an experiment, no big deal. And that mindset has allowed us to you know, make those changes and, and pivot and test a little bit more rapidly. And at the end of 2022, we were sitting there and we noticed that a couple of statistics were out there. One, subscription fatigue exists. Two, in 2023, it's expected that there's going to be 100,000 restaurants shut down across the U.S., Wow. The majority of those restaurants are spaces that dine-in is no longer popular with. And so as an example, 500 Burger Kings closing down this year, a lot of them are the ones with the play places attached, right? No sure. one wants to take their kid there anymore, it seems like. So we said, what if we found vacant space and we converted the dine-in space to the farm using our exact same setup of growing? And then we serve the world's freshest salads through the drive through plus online ordering. So again, experiment to us, we went in search of a space and we landed on the old Fazoli space, North Grand Mall area. And in six weeks, we went from keys to demo to equipment installed to serving the first salads at the drive-thru. And thankfully, it has been a rocket ship for us. That's awesome. So I will admit having some restaurant experience myself that I thought your timeline was absolutely insane. But now I find myself to be the person when I go through the drive through with my little Clayton Farms carrying card that the person in the window always comments that they've never seen anyone with more points than me. All right. 
Thank so you. here I am, the, the full-blown convert. So now what happens? You just going to keep humming along with your one little drive-through or what? You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned to the timeline. That's something that startups to, to grow and scale, we have to bend reality to our will. And that timeline, I mean, the majority of people thought we, we couldn't do it. And we knew it was incredibly over-the-top ambitious. And when we started filling out and recruiting the team to run the location, early candidates came in and said, you know, this isn't possible. And so we had to keep searching for you know, the right candidates who said like, okay, this sounds crazy. I'm in. Yeah, I like crazy. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And, uh, and, you know, that really helped boost the momentum that we had. So when we said we were going to launch March 31st, and March 31st rolls around and we launch. Of course, there were hiccups, there were hurdles, there were some brick walls we had to brute force our way through. But when we launched, something that Danan and I, we hadn't thought of, but it ended up being like a huge morale boost was for the first time since inception of the company, we were showcasing our technology to the general public. Every other setting, it's, you know, we have our dedicated space and our growth space. Yes, we've hosted tours, but, you know, someone driving by can't necessarily see it. So for the first time, everything was showcased. As you pull up to the drive-through, you can see just a couple of feet away through the window. That's the lettuce growing that's going into your salad. Those are the microgreens, etc. And with that model, it's brought some more transparency to the food space, which we're very excited by. And we know that this model can scale by just being cookie cuttered out. And so as we look to scale, we are currently in the process of finding location number two, potentially location number three for the corporate owned side. But then in 2024, we want to change to franchising. So are you actively looking for people to buy into your franchise model? Or how will that all work? Do you suspect? Not that you have a crystal ball, but I would imagine you have a better idea than I do. So behind the scenes, we're working on a couple of awesome partnerships, bringing in individuals who have the franchising experience and who have helped build out the playbooks for companies to franchise. My plan is come January 1st to be able to go in search of the ideal who I would call the chief farmer of their location. So it's someone who wants to improve their local food system. They're community driven. They want to embrace technology. And at the end of the day, they want to serve the world's freshest salad. And that is the ideal franchisee to us. And if they're located in the Midwest, great. If they're located anywhere in the States, great. Even if they're located abroad, we want to be talking with them. Through the franchising and the partnerships, that's how we really, really get our model out there. Which if everybody has access to the world's freshest salads, I think that's a big win at the end of the day. Talk a little bit more about this transparency in, in food thing. I think one of the things that I really personally love about the business is that I sit in lots of campus-based meetings with large corporations where they're trying to figure this out, and it's really hard. Transportation systems and things really complicate matters. I think intrinsically, customers and consumers want to know more, but they don't also understand the stream that it takes to get a steak on your table, for instance, or I mean, whatever yeah. the case may be. Just talk a little bit more about where you see the industry going, the part that you're playing in it. I mean, I think from a fast food standpoint, I don't know of anybody else that's trying this in the space. What are your thoughts there? I have a, a lot of thoughts around it. I'll try to not ramble here. You know, for 
for me, going back to the statistic that if you walk into a produce aisle and all the food sitting on that shelf is missing a third or more of its nutrients, it's not the grocer's fault, it's not the distributor's fault, and it's not the producer's fault. But they're segmented. So they can't fix this problem unless they own more of the supply chain and can reduce all the processes in the steps, right? And so for us, from starting on the technology piece and then working our way into the direct consumer and into the retail, our biggest advantage has been to own each step. And as you apply it to a retail side, the transparency with consumers, I I see it kind of unfolding in, in two directions that benefit. So one direction, we know people no longer only want to know where their food comes from. They want to know how it was grown and all of the inputs and the environmental impact. So if our hydroponic garden is a couple of feet away from their vehicle at the drive-thru and they can look through and then they can look us up on social media and say, okay, it is, it's hydroponics. Here's the benefits to using a closed loop system with saving water, reducing fertilizer. Um, here's how they use the most energy efficient lighting. So that is kind of a practical step for us. And of course it markets itself. And it helps people understand the inputs for growing the food that goes into their salads. On the other side of it, this is something that over the last couple of years we really focused on was if you're going to have a consumer-facing brand, especially when it comes to a food brand, then what should be accessible to anybody who asks? And now coming up on three years ago, we decided to move to building in public. And with building in public, it's essentially a step that a company takes to share all of its metrics publicly to anyone who asks. And at the time, we started to share our subscriber metrics, our average order value. We started to share uh, the number of deliveries we were doing each week. We started to share some of the mathematics behind how we were reducing some of the inputs that went into the farm to try to stay lean, especially from an environmental side. But something that wasn't jiving with us at the time was we still had four patents pending on our technology. And it was a lot around the growing and the electricity needs, the water needs, etc. And so we actually let all of our patent applications expire. And we decided to open source all of that. And the biggest advantage we have right away is now consumers can understand that. And, you know, here's what's happening behind the scenes with our indoor farm applied to the restaurant model, let's say. But on the other side of that, I believe indoor farming or vertical farming has a lot of maturing to do. Uh, It is the Wild West still. You know, when we started the company and you would have Googled, you know, vertical farming, it seemed to be nothing but cannabis results across Google. Uh, Nowadays, you have the big players who are going through some growing pains, such as arrow farms on the East Coast, plenty on the West Coast. But for us to open source our data, now anyone who wants to opt in and open source their data, hopefully it's a rising tide raises all ships approach to indoor farming. Because if we come across an indoor farm who's using you know, less water than us, we can learn from them. And then the industry as a whole can benefit uh, and then vice versa. I love that you got into that. And I'm so glad that we're talking about it because it's essentially 
the idea behind a, like a Google-based platform versus an Apple-based platform. Like we're going to let it all hang out and let the developers be developers or we're going to lock it down and you can't get into any of our stuff and be wildly profitable. Now here we are, however many years later, where the market's shifting and changing and growing and you're talking about this in a market that's incredibly immature. I think it probably had to... I'm imagining that you've taken some hits from general population, investors, and people for not protecting that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just the wide open approach versus not? Yeah, we've definitely had some pushback over the years. You know, one of my, or the, the funniest uh, memories that come to mind, looking back on it, it's, it's funny now in the moment, it was, it was uh, nerve wracking. Uh, we were doing a pitch to some investors and we were here in Iowa and in the middle of the pitch, one of the investors stood up, walked over to the window where there was a cornfield and pointed out the window and said, that's farming. You know, what you are doing is not farming. And it's interesting to be, you know, right smack in the middle of what I would consider the heartland of agriculture. And then to say, I'm a farmer and I don't use soil. So we've had to take the... Uh, hey, at least you called it soil. That, there you go. Instead that's right. dirt. That's right. <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's interesting because a lot of people see it as you have to choose and you're either on this side of the fence or that side of the fence. But the reality is all of us can coexist. And every year, more and more people are starting to eat more and more leafy greens. You know, the data showing like, hey, you need this in your diet. More people are making data-driven decisions because it's accessible. And I think a lot of the time that data and, and how it comes down to being something just important for people to understand is because of people deciding to just throw it out there and just say, make of it what you will. If you can utilize it and build new models and it leads to something from your side, very technical, great. Otherwise, if you just want to understand a little bit more on the subject, that's good too. And I I think the average individual building a company in Iowa could think 10 times bigger and not worry as much about IP, which I know as this goes out, I'm sure I'll receive some pushback from that. But if you think about the word innovation, in my mind, it's making the world a better place. And if you keep it all in and hidden, you know, it's this black box or, or something that it can only benefit your company if you reach a certain scale. Whereas if you open source, you are building ambassadors and you're building up some credibility, whether you're doing something right or wrong, but you're learning about it and learning from it at a much faster pace. So open source, in my mind, is is absolutely the path forward. And you're only as good as the sum of your parts. If you're riding along with the black box theory, and there's always smarter people out there than, than you, right? That's so right. Absolutely. It's abundance versus scarcity mentality in the in the framework of things. So what do you see as being next? I mean, you're going to build a couple more of these, you're going to create a franchise model. Do you intend to be Farmer Clayton for the rest of your life in um, this business? Do you want to have an exit someday? What's off on the horizon for you? I have this thesis that we can exist anywhere a Jimmy John's exists. And so a couple thousand Jimmy John's locations out there today, I think it could be closer to 10,000 locations. And The franchising model for us, what's so exciting about that is we find partners who are going to be the owners of these locations. And if they have that similar mindset, like I had mentioned about being the chief farmer and wanting to support their local community with better and healthier food, 
then that's going to be a win for everybody. And to see that through, whether it takes, you know, three years, 10 years, or 15 years, I'm absolutely along for the ride. I like the joke that now with the name update, I'm locked in to see it through no matter what. And I think that's a good thing at the end of the day. But for us, it'll really come down to finding the right people out there and then continuing to grow our team, our headquarters team, to be able to support all of those franchisees. Right. So I cannot let you leave here today without talking a little bit about some of your personal pursuits. I know you're a runner, you're a mountain climber, you like to do all of these crazy and exotic things for most people. Um, I like to run, but not as far and as probably fast as you. I like to climb mountains, but not generally the ones that are as high as the ones you're climbing. So what are you up to next? What's on the horizon? I run and escape to the mountains to de-stress. And right now, I'm thinking about signing up for my next ultra. It's a 50-mile trail race that happens here in Iowa in November. It's pretty unique. It starts at 3 in the afternoon, and it's five 10-mile loops on the trails. So at the end of the first loop, it's dark. So headlamp for the last 40 miles. And there's something about it. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's like, I don't know, masochistic or something of, you know, you're out there suffering, but you... In those moments, it brings you more clarity. It's probably similar for you to escape to the mountains, right? Like you unplug, you're out there, you're actually enjoying the view and not staring at a screen. And you take away some point of clarity around that moment. And that is something I'm constantly searching for. And for some reason, I found it in the trail running, the mountain climbing, and then also boxing over the years where... I'm a volunteer assistant coach for Iowa State Boxing today. And I've learned things the hard way there. I I think I'm a little bit better of a coach than I ever was a boxer. When you learn things the hard way boxing, is it because you got punched in the face or? Yeah, yeah, just a few (laughs) times. I still, my nose is broken right now. I still need to get it fixed. Uh, But yeah, I I think, and it forces you to live in the moment because with boxing, the second you're thinking about something else in the ring, like there is the result of physical pain. And it's weird because forcing you to, to focus on the moment is a way to bring clarity. Whereas on the other side of that, running on the trails and getting to, you know, 35, 40 miles in and forgetting your name is somehow another way to bring yourself some clarity. Uh, I can see the darkness part as well. I mean, when you've been doing it as long as you have and put in the miles that you have where, I mean, you can be doing business while you're running 50 miles in broad daylight and it could be really, really hard to get your head to focus, but you put a headlamp on and all you're trying to do is not trip and fall on your face over the next route for That's right. all those laps. Some clarity might emerge in the darkness, so to speak. So That's right, especially when it. you start hearing, uh, hearing voices or hearing animals out there on the trails with you. Thinking somebody's chasing you. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it gets pretty wild out there uh, on the trails in the dark uh, at that mileage. And I, you know, something else that I, I think is really important to point out here is, well, I'm a boxing coach. I also, I have a running coach that I've had now for a few years who has really helped me dial in everything. Uh, but I think it's really important for people to look for mentors and coaches. So I have a running coach you know, coach that helps on the founder side, a therapist, like all of these people keeping me accountable, but also helping me to find more clarity. And I think that's a must in today's world. Ah, I love that you mentioned it. And I love that you also included the mental health 
side of things. I lament all the time that we put people through our educational system and we teach them all of these things about how to be a better business person, how to be a good employee and what have you. But the mental training and the help that you can get if you're really vulnerable with a really good therapist cannot be understated. And I would argue for a startup in particular, when you're so profoundly impactful on the people you surround yourself with, that there's probably no one other better thing. 100% agreed. I think the, you know, therapy has, it's a lot of people view therapy as reactive, as you need to go there after you've gone through something bad. But I think if you go with the mindset of being proactive, it compounds and everything compounds positively. So I'm four years into an every other week therapy appointment. And every time I go into it, I have, okay, here's, here's what's on my mind. I'm trying to understand why my thoughts arrived at this or like, here's a big decision. How should I be thinking about it? Am I thinking about it clearly, et cetera? And then you come out of there with, again, more clarity and I would highly recommend everyone do it and be proactive about it. And then whether it's, you know, sports or running a company, having someone there to keep you accountable with understanding the stage you're at is absolutely key. And then if you just want to search for mentors, you know, mentor, in my opinion, a perfect one is someone who is two or three years ahead of where you're at today with the stage of your company. And it's so fresh in their mind still of what you're going through that all of their advice is, well, this is what happened to us and this is how we did it. And then you can translate that and hopefully apply it very practically to the situation you're in today. Sure. That makes sense. I like the idea of, of changing things over, over time. Different people are going to emerge that are the perfect person for you at different stages of your life for the different things that you need in your business and what have you. That's Absolutely. fantastic. So as we wrap it up here, anything that you would like to add? Anything that you think everybody should know about Clayton Farms? Uh, shameless self-plug. We are located at 2435 Grand Avenue. And you can order online by visiting claytonfarms.com, either for the subscription delivery or for our salads, if you're in the area. But beyond that, I, I want to continue to encourage everyone to think bigger. And whether that's you're part of the startup community who's supporting entrepreneurs and founders, or you are an entrepreneur or founder, just thinking bigger, we could all use a little bit more of that. Thank you for being here today. It's been great to talk to you. And I can't wait to see what you and Clayton Farms have in store for the future. Thanks, everyone for listening. Until next time, stay inspired.